0: I lit the candles today. I didn't notice whether or not they were lit last week, but I I wanted to light them, and I want them... I'm going to pray the the traditional Shabbat prayer because there's a thing about Shabbat that fits in with what I'm talking about today, and I want you to catch it. I'll come back to it at the end, but it makes an important statement. So Chabad tells us, that's the Haredi company... uh, subsect of the jews would normally have a woman do this on shabbat in the home right they light the candles 18 minutes before sundown and she she veils herself and prays this blessed are you lord god king of the universe who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to kindle the light of the holy shabbat and that's the the whole prayer Shabbat is about light. Shabbat is about rest. And we'll come back to that because it, it plays a, por- a part here. Roman asked me to preach. He gave me the, the topic and he gave me the scripture, so it was a real, kind of a different way of preparing for me, a different dive. It stretched me a little. Um, he wants me to speak. Uh, we're doing the series on highs and lows, ups and downs in the season, and he gave me the topic of grief. And at first I was like, grief? And the topic we're going to speak out of uh, Matthew chapter 2 is, is the event that happened after Jesus was born um, with the murder of the children. So it's a little bit dark today, and I, I want to deal with the concept of grief, that, that weighing down, not the grief of someone who annoys us. That's the definition of grief. But the grief of 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 that darkness and heaviness of losing someone that you love that's close to you it's, it leads to depression and people who have lost loved ones at this time of year it's a struggle and that's what roman wants to to address so we're going to start with i'm just going to give you the outline of of the beginnings of the gospel so that you understand when this happens And what's going on in the life of Mary and Joseph and of Yeshua? All right, we are, the Gospels start out with the angel Gabriel announcing the coming of John, the birth of a child to Zacharias and and Elizabeth, his wife. Zacharias is in the temple, this is Luke. Chapter 1, like 5 to 25, and an angel comes and speaks to him and announces him. And, and Zacharias is like, how can these be? We're past childbearing years. And and because of that, Gabriel gives him muteness. You're not going to speak until the child is born. And then six months into the pr- pregnancy, Gabriel goes to a completely different part of Israel and she announces the conception of Yeshua to Miriam, to Mary. Mary is already um, betrothed to be married. And, And she accepts that servanthood of the Lord despite the fact that it will definitely pose a problem to her marriage plans. And after that, the angel tells her that Elizabeth is with child, and then Mary immediately gets up and goes. Elizabeth is six months pregnant at this point, and Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and stays there for approximately three months. It it doesn't, and and we don't know whether she leaves like just before the baby is born or just after, Eh, thinking it through, Mary probably wanted to be around when John was born, and When John is born, they're trying to name him someone from the family's name and and Zacharias is able to speak and says, no, his name will be John, as he was told to name the baby. And then Mary goes back to Nazareth. It's quite a distance. And when she gets back, Joseph is like, well, wait a second, you're pregnant. And there's the, the kerfluffle, as some would say, in that whole relationship and 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 then gabriel comes i believe it's gabriel maybe it just says an angel an angel comes to joseph in in a dream and explains to him the miraculous conception of yeshua in mary's life in the body and he he accepts that explanation and he gets up and he marries her And then a while a little bit down the road be a piece in Luke chapter two, Caesar Augustus makes a decree for a census, right? All the world in Jerusalem has to go back to the city of their birth, so where their ancestral home was and register and pay taxes. And that's the impetus for Mary and Joseph to get up. They're living up in Nazareth in the, in Galilee, and they come down to Bethlehem, which is about five miles south of Jerusalem. That's a ninety-mile walk. And we know that when they get there, right? Mary's delivered of the child, and Yeshua is born. So she's in the last trimester, like very, very close. And yeah, they went on a donkey, but probably they walked more than rode on the donkey because donkeys aren't very amenable to being ridden a long time. So it's a 90-mile walk. Probably took them days, maybe more than a week, coming down along the Jordan and then back in country and up the hills. Um, Not an easy thing to do when you're nine months pregnant. And during their stay, Yeshua was born. That's the ninth month. John is now six months old and the angels come and announce the birth to shepherds and the shepherds come and visit them in the manger and they leave rejoicing God, telling everybody what they've heard and what they've seen. Eight days later, Yeshua is circumcised in the temple. I don't know if it was in the temple. It doesn't say. Maybe he was circumcised there, but they're close enough to jerusalem that it could have been in the temple mary can't go into the temple at that point because she's still ritually impure from the birth of her son and then mary another 25 days later mary completes her purification ritual and then they they can go into the temple and offer the sacrifice that she needs to offer, offer. and of all the offerings she offers the offering of a poor family, two turtledoves. So the family isn't blessed with lots of funds. And as they come into the temple, or I don't know if it's as they come in or as they finish, they meet Simeon, and Simeon was told that he isn't going to die until he sees Messiah. And he comes up to them and he praises God because, Lord, you can now take my life. I have seen your Messiah. You imagine being told that with you, about your child, and Anna hears him and comes in. Anna is uh, a, a woman who's in her eighties, like about eighty-four, and she has been she was married for seven years and has been a widow ever since, serving with fastings and and, and prayers in the temple. So she's probably been doing that for. Oh, since about she's maybe 25 or even younger. And she hears that and she praises God and she tells everybody in the temple who's looking for redemption that redemption has come. And then everything goes dark for a while. I know that the, the manger scenes put the, the wise men in the manger scene, but there's no reason to do that. And we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 2. And read about what's going on. So in Matthew chapter 2, here's the backdrop in verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, so they came from the west, and have come to worship him. Then when Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered the chief priests and the scribe together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men to determine from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I too may come and worship him. When they heard the king, they departed, and they behold the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star they rejoiced with exceeding joy and when they had come into the house notice they're in the house now when they saw the the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshipped him and when they had opened their treasures they presented gifts to him gold, frankincense and myrrh Then being divinely warned in the dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country a separate way. Another way. And then we get to what happens next. So they go a different way. They don't go back to Herod. And there's some intervening time here. Potentially. Now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and he was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the, word, the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I will call my son. So there's the echoes of the Old Testament in the story. You have the echo of Herod acting like Pharaoh, right? Trying to destroy the, Jewish, the, the male children of, of Israel. You have an echo of Israel exiting Egypt. And I put this later specifically because of what Herod does. Now Herod, Herod is not of the line of David. He is not an approved heir to the throne of Israel. He's appointed. His mother was Jewish, his father was Arab. He has no right as king of Israel, even though he's king of Israel. And Herod, what troubled him was, oh, there's a valid king born. Mashiach is here. Messiah is here. I'm in trouble. And all Jerusalem with him. And now we turn to the passage that we're going to consider. Matthew 2, 16 to 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all the districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Remember, he particularly learned when they saw the star then was fulfilled the word spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying a voice was heard in Ramah lamentation weeping and great mourning Rachel weeping for her children refusing to be comforted because they were no more now this is a really hard and strange story in the middle of joyousness right but it fits so Perfectly, the whole concept of grief and, and what some people struggle in the holidays, right, with dealing with what's going on. So just to give you an idea, my family is a- a- acquainted with grief, and many of you know a lot of these things. Some of you don't. So let me review some points of the last few years in my life. Um, our third child, Jonathan's next older brother, Samuel, was born, beautiful child, not long after his birth, like about three months after his birth, he had a seizure while I was changing him on, on the, the changing table, and then within the same week, he had another seizure, and it was just like the winking of his eye and the, and the convulsing of his hand. Within a week, he had um, a whole body seizure. We, we ended up going to the doctors and um, the primary care sent us to a neurologist and we put him on anticonvulsants and thus started a very long journey in his life. He ended up being diagnosed as ver- verbal dyspraxic. So until the age of three, he only said the word da. And we got him help with speech therapy and, and assistive tech therapy all through his, his life. And he just kept getting worse. And we kept going to doctors in later life, trying to figure out what was wrong with him. And we every doctor we went to, it's like, nope, passed all those tests with flying colors. We went to every kind of doctor in this area. And then we went to Boston, to Mass General, dealt with Dr. Catherine Sims, the, the head of neurology and neurogenetics. She was a mitochondrial disease specialist and she did tests for mitochondrial disease, and nope, he doesn't have that. She finally sent us to the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland, part of of the National Institutes for Health. We stayed there on their dime. They did a whole study of work, genetic workup on every member of the family and put Samuel through a battery of tests and then sent us home. And, and And I went back the next year with Samuel And they confirmed that he had this disease leukoencephalopathy with cerebral calcifications and cysts LCC very rare and we were told oh he's U.S. patient eight world patient 14. And he we continued on and finally got to a point where his development started being open overtaken by his um, progressive disease state. We, we tried to use Botox in his limbs um, to give him more mobility because we had started carrying him around everywhere. And um, something went wrong. The doctors maintained that it was his di- a shift in his disease state. I, I maintained that um, the doctor gave him sumo- too much because the static utterments, the doctor said that when he was looking him over. Um, we sued, we lost in arbitration, and I was okay with that. Um, it was a rough time, and and I was here in um, 2011 rehearsing for Awana My wife called me. There was no, there were no kids. We were just here doing the walkthrough, dry run. Samuel was not doing well. You need to come home right away. And we had just finished, and I went home, and I'm praying, Lord. I want to see him but if you need to take him it's okay. I know where he's going. By the time I had gotten home he was passed and if you've ever seen a dead body they're really white. It's really sad. And we lost Samuel. We celebrated his life on, on October 8th, 2011 and this church was full of people we celebrated faith we celebrated celebrated life we we clearly preached the gospel to unsaved family members unsaved friends and we used that opportunity to uphold christ and faith there were people out the doors they couldn't sit down and that was how we dealt with that in in um 2020, my mom came to live with us. She had dementia. She had support in her home in Chicopee. Um, and it got to the point where Jonathan lived there for like a semester while trying to go to stick. It was more than that, I'm sorry. Didn't remember that right. Um, and Jonathan finally was like, I can't deal with this. And I said, okay, I'll take over. And I took over like December, January. And uh, I understood why he was having struggle, because my mom was not easy to deal with. She was ornery. She was angry. She didn't want to (laughs) listen. And we're trying to take care of her and uh, slept on this really uncomfortable bed. Um, And at the end of a quarter, at the end of, of March, my brother came up to visit and I was working on a room in our house, and he was with her while I was finishing that up. And we came, we brought her to live with us in March of 2020. And what a godsend that move was, because right after that, COVID exploded. And we took care of her, and I, she did not know the Lord, so I particularly would read books to her. I chapter a chapter a day, like while she was eating or something, I read to her The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. I, I read to her the book Zvi, which is about Zvi Kalisher, who's uh, a ten-year-old boy in Warsaw when the tanks come rolling in in 1939, and it follows his whole life through all the, the Israeli wars. He gets saved, and he starts... Re- arguing with rabbis. So, I mean, I, gave, I read books to her that would present the gospel in a way that she could receive. And um, took her for an appointment down in October near her birthday. And on, um, like, Halloween, she collapsed. We didn't know what was going on. We called the paramedics. We went down to Bay State with her. Come to find out she had a serious case of pneumonia and she already had interstitial lung disease and the doctor's like what do we do and i'm like well her order says that she wants you to go to the wall with all of this but you know i'm a medical proxy and it makes no sense that we do heroics for someone with lung disease and dementia um i I want you to put her on a dnr and then, you know, we came to church the next day. We went to see her, called all the relatives, and everyone was able to express their love for her, almost everyone, and have some sort of closure. And, and we're waiting around, and she was like, just holding on. And we said, you know, told the doctors, we'll, you know, call us when it happens. And we left the building, and we were three blocks away, and she passed. It was like she was waiting for us to leave. In 2021, my my cousin Greg died in February of um, pancreatic cancer. uh, On December 18th, 2021, my oldest brother Tom died. Um, We we couldn't even go out to the funeral because COVID had flared up and we didn't want to fly amidst that, so we, we zoomed in. We couldn't be with his family. So I'm, I'm a little bit accustomed with grief, especially at this time of the year. So I, I tell that to be transparent. Not the easiest sermon to, to prepare. So we see the death of an in, the innocents and, and Matthew quotes has fulfillment a passage in Jeremiah and he's talking about Rachel so who's Rachel well we need we need to figure out who's Rachel is so you do the search in the Bible there's a, a little under 50 references to Rachel almost all of them are in Genesis in like three chapters right there's one in Samuel that we'll look at, and there's one in Matthew. (laughs) Actually, Samuel, Jeremiah, and Matthew, because Matthew quotes Jeremiah. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 35, 16 to 20. Rachel was the favorite wife of Jacob. He went and lived in in Patim Adarim, I believe it was, and his Father, Abraham's um, nephew, or Abraham's wife, Sarah's brother, um, had this daughter, Rachel. And he served Laban for seven years to marry Rachel, and Laban did a swap. And he ended up marrying Leah, the older daughter. Didn't discover it the wedding night. In the morning he discovers it lay, and he's like, "What did you do to me?" And Laban was like, "That's okay. The older one needs to get married first. So you can several, serve me another seven years for the one that you love." And he did. And then he said, "Served him another seven years for wages. And then he left because Laban was manipulating things to keep him, because every t- as long as he stayed, Jacob was blessed thus Laban was blessed. And they left. So they're coming back, and they're coming back to where Jacob originally grew up. So we pick it up in Genesis 35, and then they journeyed from Bethel, and and when they were but a little distance to go to Ephrata, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she, she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. The baby's going to be born. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrata, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And then we read in 1 Samuel the beginning of 1 Samuel 10 verse 2 when you depart so Samuel is talking to Saul who he just anointed or or prophesied that he's going to anoint him king. When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. So I have a, I have a map. If you can put it up. And you see at the top is Bethel, where they start, and they're coming down that arrow that comes straight down the page, journeying to Bethlehem. Ramah's in the middle. Jabus, you see that? Jabus was conquered by David. Was renamed Jerusalem. So now you have a bearing in the land, right? Ramah is five, maybe six miles north of, of Jerusalem, and Bethlehem is about five miles south of B- Jerusalem. And Rachel's tomb is all the way down here at the bottom. You can see kind of a gray line surrounding that. That's the outline of the territory of Benjamin. And Zelzah's at, at the bottom in benjamin near bethlehem and that's where rachel's tomb is right because we just read that so what does rachel have to do with jeremiah who is like hundreds of years in the future and 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 um rachel who's already dead for hundreds of years weeping That 's the question, right? And if we're talking about Bethlehem and what happened to, to the children in Bethlehem, why is he bringing up Rama? All right so here's some of the, the, the line, and we'll go let me read to you, Jeremiah, and then we'll talk about it right so, so jeremiah thirty one fifteen through seventeen, Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That's a slightly different rendering, probably a mixture of the Greek and the Hebrew from translation. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. So here we are in Jeremiah's time. And the Lord gives Jeremiah this word. It's from the Lord. The Lord says, tell him this, right? So the Lord is setting up Rachel from all that way back, right? Rachel died in childbirth, and she named the the child, Ben-Oni, which is child of my, or son of my sorrow, or maybe more accurately, son of my grief. And there's an interesting twist there because it would be son of my grief because I am in pain and heavily laden and lamenting in this labor and I'm dying. But also son of my grief handed to Jacob because with a name like that, all he's going to remember is the grief and the loss of his wife. And Jacob is smart. Jacob says, okay, but I'm going to name him Benjamin, son of my right hand. I'm going to look on this event and mourn my wife, but look on the blessed, glorious gift that God has given me. And look at the positive thing that God did through her sacrifice in child labor. And he is going to be the son of my right hand. He's not going to leave me. Right? And you see that in the history of Jacob. When Joseph goes down into the territory of Egypt, right? He gets sold by his brothers. And, and, and Jacob is it's beside himself with grief because he thinks Joseph was killed. And his sons let him think that. The other sons by the other wives. And when the, the brothers go down and they Joseph confronts them, he's asking about Jacob. He's asking about Benjamin. And, the, and they're offering information. And he goes, okay, you can go away. And there's the whole back and forth with the brothers. But he says, you will not see my face unless you return with Benjamin. And there's a whole battle for them to get... Benjamin to go so that they can get more food and survive the famine because it's the son of my right hand what am I going to do I've already lost son of my most dearest wife and now you're going to take the other one and he's going to die too right and that didn't happen joyous things came out of that whole event so God is holding up Rachel and that whole situation Here in Jeremiah, Ramah was the place where Nebuchadnezzar was gathering the people in Israel to send them off and export them to Babylon. And here's Rachel's tune. Rachel is held up. Here we go again. The Jewish mothers are weeping and lamenting, not willing to be consoled because some of my sons are not and the other ones are going off into exile. She becomes the perennial, weeping mother, Jewish mother over the death and the hurt of her children. And that's the picture that God starts with. But He goes after and He says, in verse 16, thus says the Lord, refrain from your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work shall be rewarded says the lord and they shall come back from the land of the enemy there is hope in your future says the lord that your children shall come back to their own border notice he doesn't say stop crying he doesn't say don't mourn as a matter of fact And I didn't look it up, but there's a a verse in the Old Testament that says that God takes our tears and keeps them in the bottle. And I've often wondered if that's the liquid that's in the bowl judgments that he pours out in judgment on the earth. The death of the saints are precious. The grief that we feel, he understands and he feels grief with us. And we'll see what I'll, you'll see why I say that later in another verse. So he doesn't say don't mourn. He doesn't say don't weep. He says restrain it, hold it back, and he says but think of hope. So this passage in Jeremiah. God has turned from all the judgment that's back here and he starts telling about how they're only going to be in Babylon for seven years and how he's going to bless and how he's going to restore. And at the end, just after this, here's the new covenant that I'm going to cut with Israel. Not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, says the Lord, Right, And in, in Ezekiel, which is, comes later, he says, this is the covenant. I'm going to give you a new heart and, a, and put a new human spirit in you. And I'm going to put my spirit in you. And I will be your God and you will be my people. Right? So the whole covenant promise is right, in, right next to this in Jeremiah. And now Matthew is going, this is fulfillment of that. Right? Fulfillment by the way of application. And the Messiah is here. The promises are starting to unfold. And Matthew, by way of application, brings out the weeping because again we're in Bethlehem, which is just on the border of Benjamin, and all the southern kingdom walked through Bethlehem into Ramah. To be deported in Jeremiah's time. And, and the kingdom up above, above Benjamin, is Ephraim. And Assyria had slaughtered and deported them. So Rachel had a foot in both kingdoms of the time of Christ. The northern kingdom, which was now totally gone, in Jeremiah's time, or going away, and and Babylon, where they're now taking away Judah, right? So she represents both kingdoms, and she's weeping, and God says, restrain your weeping. And, And Matthew says, all these children have died because of Messiah, because of a wicked Arab king over you who has no right to the throne, is trying to destroy Messiah, and he fled to Egypt, Restrain your weeping. Messiah got away. Messiah will be back. There's the echo, right? That's what God wants uh, us to understand about grief. Here is His remedy for grief. He doesn't say don't cry. He doesn't say don't weep. He says do so without being unconsolable. Remember some other things. God wants us to consider what He's doing and who He is in the midst of our grief because that is a bomb to us and that will lead us out of A grief that leads to depression and despair and into hope and life. Out of darkness and into light. Right? So I want you to remember these things. Things that we think about at the Christmas time frame. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now the easiest one to get there is Shar Shalom, Prince of of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He wants to bring Shalom into your life. And while in sovereignty God rules here with an invisible hand, he's coming again and he will rule from Jerusalem visibly for a thousand years. And then the final judgment. And the government will be upon his shoulder. He has the authority of rulership. He has the authority to take your sorrow and turn it into joy and your grief and turn it into dancing. Isaiah 61, 4. Jesus quotes this, Yeshua quotes this at the beginning of his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, the opening of prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And I put an asterisk in there because that's where he stopped. He stopped reading all of the verses that he was, should have been reading. And everybody's like, what's going on? He didn't finish. The rest of it says, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they should be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, and they shall rebuild old ruins. They shall raise up former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. You hear the picture here. I am going to stop the mourning. I am going to comfort you. We are going to rebuild. That is your God. Do not let the darkness and despair of grief. Overcome your life. Give God His place. He doesn't say don't weep and don't mourn, but He doesn't want you to be unconsolable. The grief that God, in grief, God wants us to consider what He is doing both in and around us. Grief leads to comfort, which equips us to minister to others. That's out of this next passage, right? Second Corinthians 1, 1-6. Paul, an apostle to Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed that They always use this greeting. Grace and shalom to you. Grace and shalom. Two things that we desperately need when we're in grief and mourning. Grace and peace to you from the God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for our consolation and salvation, which is effective and enduring from the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or, if we are comforted, it is for your com- consolation and salvation. So God allows us to go through periods of, of persecution, of struggle, of strife, of mourning and grief, and he uses that as an opportunity to deliver us consolation to deliver us comfort to deliver us mercy to save us not in the sense of paying you know expiation and propitiation of our sins but in the say in the sense of making us whole and alive and he gives us comfort and he expects us to take that comfort and share that comfort with other people who are going through those struggles. So me, having survived cancer, I have a special ministry to people who, have, who are going through cancer. I can come alongside and say, yeah, I know this sucks, but keep going. I'm praying for you. I know this is going to be horrific and you're really, really afraid. But it, it doesn't have to be scary right? Here's what's going to happen. Here's what I experience. And I can be like someone who's got a dislocated or broken leg and come under them and help them to limp down that road. With grief, with anything that God comforts in, we have a ministry opportunity in others. So he gives us consolation to build us up and to mature us, and he gives us a ministry from that in other people's lives. That we who have gotten light out of the darkness should be lighting their candle and be light for them so that they can be light. Light from the darkness. In John 1, 4 and 5, Jesus says in, uh, John says of, Je- of Yeshua, in him we have life and the life is the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not comprehend it. So that, that word there, comprehend, is lambano. It has a sense of, of, of give and receive. Kata intensifies it. And I think a better translation of um, did not uh, comprehend it would be did not seize it, did not overtake it, does not overpower it. So the light, the darkness of this world cannot overpower Messiah's light, cannot overpower Hashem's light. And and we have light through this word. This is unassailable. Like people may not believe it, but they can't prove it. Disprove that it's true. In losing a believing one, loved one, personal, personal exhortation. We should celebrate the Lord's work in and through their lives like we did for Samuel, right? Preach the gospel. Tell people what they don't know. Tell people what they may not want to hear. Give them an opportunity to hear the good news that God has given us. That that an Hashem has been made for us and a new covenant has been cut. And, and by the way, it's not owned by the, the Gentiles in the room. It's a Jewish thing. It's a new covenant to the Jewish people. And we just have to be, happen to be grafted in because God is gracious towards us as Gentiles. And for unbelieving loved ones, because we all have them. Don't let it come to the point where you're mourning their loss with regret. Today, this week, this season, try to talk to them. Try to give them the gospel. Be creative. How will they receive it? With my mom, during the time when she was starting to walk up towards dementia, back when the Left Behind series came out. Now, I know that the Left Behind series has some, like, okay, that, that's not exactly right scripturally. I gave her every one of the ten books. She read every one of them. And you know what appears in every book of that series? The gospel. Every single one. And, you know, two, and and here she is, the last Six months or so, while she's living with me, and I'm reading her about Corey Tenboom's life because she's in dementia and she remembers the past way easier. so I'm going back to World War II time frame so that she can connect, and all through those books is the statement of the gospel, and she passes and I didn't know that she ever made a profession of faith. That was really hard. And then while I'm cleaning up. preparing for the funeral. This is a copy. I, I came across this note. It's my, it's something with my dad's name on it, you know, a pad he probably got from somebody wanting money from him. And it, but it's in my mom's handwriting. It says, thank you, God, for loving me and for sending your son to die for, for my sins I sincerely repent of my sins and receive Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Now, as your child, I turn my entire life over to you. Amen. Now, I don't know, I have no knowledge of whether she copied this out of a book because she wanted to ponder it, or this is her sincere prayer. I take it as a statement of her faith. So I believe that I'm going to see my mom again. This was so dear to me, celebrating her passing. So I, I encourage you, be creative on how you give your, your loved ones the gospel. Don't stop. Now the passage is really about Israel. Israel. Michael Rodalnik makes this comment about Jeremiah. Therefore, Matthew cited Jeremiah 31, 15, to show that Scripture had a continuing relevance, simply applying the language of this prophecy to the tragic situation of the slaughter of the innocents. Even as Jeremiah had described Rachel, representing Jewish motherhood, weeping at the death and exile of her sons, So Jewish mother motherhood once again mourned the wicked Herod murdered her children. And Rachel has continued to lament and refuse to be consoled for her, her children as they have been murdered by crusaders and were guilty as a Christian community, even though we didn't do it because it was Christians who murdered the Jewish people in all of those crusades, murdered by the Nazis, and murdered by not modern terrorists, and we're seeing it again right now. So the point of the passage is about Israel, and we take an application to grief and the struggles that we have today. And and if we look at the past in Babylonian, about forty-two hundred dead in that exile, and about fourteen to eighteen thousand were deported to persia to babylon in the roman war at 70 ad when the temple was de- destroyed 1.1 million dead josephus reports and another 97,000 in slavery not too many decades later with the roman war at the barcoba revolt in 132 to 136 580,000 slain by history's books and a number past knowing who died of famine, disease, and fire. World War II, I don't have the numbers on the crusades, I couldn't find them, but it's a lot. World War II, six million Jewish people destroyed by that megalomaniac, that, that servant of Satan, Hitler. And now Hamas, and Hezbollah and the Houthis, right, with that same ideology of anti-Semitism. More than a thousand. I think it's more than fourteen hundred dead, hundreds kidnapped, men, women, children, babies. We must not make the mistake of the church in Germany. We are here for such a time as this. We must stand with the Jewish people. We must stand and tell them that we love them, that we support with them. When persecution comes upon them, we will stand right next to them. We don't believe exactly as they do, but they look at what they have given us. We owe them. Don't be silent. Let your light shine. Pray for the peace of of Jerusalem. And be the light and hope and support for them in their grief. Everybody I talk to that's Jewish, knows somebody who is either kidnapped, wounded, or dead. They're a tight-knit community and they are hurting. We need to stand with them against the darkness. The last I leave you... Well, so back to the Shabbat candles. The rabbi who, from Chabad, who I was reading about, The prayer, because I don't celebrate Shabbat, but I'm aware of it, had this afterward that I thought was was intriguing. I think our theologies are different, but that's okay. A small flame or a pair of flames can seem so small and weak. How much difference can it make in the gloom of a world engulfed in darkness? The answer is a lot. The beauty of light is that even the smallest point of radiance can dispel much darkness. In the, world, in the words of the sages, one candle to one is a candle to many. And he goes on, all together, all of our Shabbat candles from all over the globe will join together creating a giant blaze of spiritual light ushering in the era of eternal Shabbat, the days of Mashiach, Messiah. To quote the sages again, if you keep the light of Shabbat, says God, I will show you the lights of Zion. May it happen soon. Amen. Now, there's a sense here where their thinking is if they do Shabbat, they bring in the kingdom. But we know that the kingdom's coming in God's timing when, when Mashiach decides to return. I leave you with this, with this last quote and a, a, a question. Matthew 5, 14, 17 says, You are the light of the world. So in the beginning, John says, He is the light, right? Jesus says that you are the light. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So I have a question for you. My question is, where have you put your light? Has it been hidden away where you couldn't see it this whole time? Or is it out on a lampstand where all can see it?